You've just heard six people give such encouraging testimonies to Jesus and what he's done in their lives. And also, um, you sort of heard, I think, probably Dave's excellent explanation of baptism, the sort of background. So if you put all that together, you heard a little bit about what it is to be a Christian and why we're baptised, associated with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the change that means in our lives. And then you heard six people bring that really home personally in their lives and how God had spoken to them, following Jesus had become real. Some of them had some degree of religious background for which they were grateful, not all of them, but that that background then finally sort of kicked in when they personally understood that Jesus had died for them and was their Saviour and Lord. Now, I want to speak for a a while this morning, about half an hour, on on some people who heard testimonies, uh, a bit like you've just heard. And uh, I want to talk about two men in the Bible who heard the testimony of Paul, the Apostle. And it stirred them and it provoked them, but sadly they pulled back from a personal commitment to what they heard. They just listened, were clearly intrigued and disturbed in some cases by what they heard, but then didn't make it personal for them and pulled back from anything that might bring a change in their lives. Now, there are actually three men who have this experience with the Apostle Paul, and it's all contained in a few chapters in Acts, which we're looking at, by the way, as a church. We're going through book of Acts. We're nearly at the end of it. We're looking uh, briefly at chapters 24 to 26 at the moment. And in those chapters, Paul is tried three times before a court. He's been arrested by the, the Jews, really, in Jerusalem. Don't like what he's saying. Don't like him talking about Jesus. And they really want to get him killed. But Paul appeals to Roman law as a way of avoiding getting killed so uh, summarily without trial. And the Romans are much more careful and protective, to be fair, with their law. He's taken into protective custody. And in that context, he has three opportunities to explain his faith in a public court of law. And those three opportunities come up in those chapters. Now, the Bible's full of stories, real stories, not made-up stories, real history. And this is real history, really happened. In fact, we know from Roman records... All of, quite a bit about Felix, who we looked at last week, and Festus, who we'll briefly look at this week. We can tell you, I can tell you, bits of background, which you know last week you were here, I did about Felix, because the Romans recorded it. These were real people. These were real events. And the experience that Paul went through, he was a real person as well, was, was, was quite set once upon a time, 2,000 years ago, in a real life situation. And that's what the Bible's all about. And it's about God meeting us in those situations. And we learn from seeing what happened to other people. And God's Holy Spirit takes that and applies it to us. Now, we'll see that's quite important later on when we're looking through these, uh, the story of these two men. But in that bigger story of, of what the church is doing, there are these little stories of these two, two, three men, as I've been looking at, who had a chance to hear about Jesus Christ and to understand what he could mean in their lives. But sadly, they all avoided any personal involvement through various excuses. Last week, we looked at the Roman governor, Felix, who uh, used the excuse of when it's more convenient. He didn't like what uh, he heard. In one way, he did like, he was fascinated by Christianity, but 
it put it, when Paul spoke about Jesus, it put a, a, a sort of finger on um, Felix's lifestyle, which was not a very moral one. And he felt uneasy about it. And he didn't want to embrace the change that the gospel would mean. So he said, look, I'll listen to it again when it's more convenient. I'll come back to it. We know that a more convenient moment never came. Felix was called back to Rome. He was actually reprimanded for his rough and cruel treatment of the Jews and ended his life in disgrace. And we have no evidence that he followed through on his interests in Jesus. Now we quickly move on to to another trial. Actually, it's the third one we're going to look at. There's a guy called Festus who replaces Felix. We'll learn about him a bit in a moment. And he's a Roman governor, a bit more uh, honourable than Felix. He listens to Paul, doesn't seem to understand a lot. We'll see a bit about that in a moment. So he calls in uh, a Jewish king called Agrippa. And the two of them together listen to Paul's story again to try and make a judgment on what they're going to do about Paul. And I want to read a passage halfway through that second trial. Paul is giving his story about his testimony about Jesus, like you've heard stories this morning. This is halfway through Paul's one. So I'm reading from Acts 26 and verse 19. Paul is actually addressing King Agrippa. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So I'm talking about what's your excuse. Last week we looked at Felix And his excuse was, when it's more convenient. This week I want to talk about Festus, whose excuse was, you're mad. You're mad. Insane. Festus had an intellectual problem with the gospel. And I think that's not uncommon today, so I want to address it for a few minutes. 
He couldn't believe that an intelligent person would believe the gospel. That seems to be his main problem. So let's briefly fill in the background. Who was Festus? Festus was the Roman governor of Judea who replaced Felix. He was more moderate and more just than Felix. Now, Felix, though, had a real understanding of Christianity. We learned last week that he was well acquainted with the Christian faith. He had a Jewish wife who probably also showed some interest in it. Festus, on the other hand, was the product of Roman culture. Festus was a full-on Roman. He was well-educated, he was intelligent, but he was pretty ignorant about both Judaism and Christianity. In Acts 25, you get an impression of someone who is brisk and energetic and businesslike. And Paul meets him at his level. When you read the, the account of the uh, sort of trial before Festus, Paul talks a lot about Roman law and about Caesar. So he, he sort of meets Festus at his level and can easily uh, refer to the law. And Festus is probably quite impressed with Paul's grasp of it. However, Paul does also mention Jesus Christ and the gospel. But Festus doesn't really seem to listen. I think that's a fair point. He doesn't seem to listen to what it's all about. You get this very interesting little dismissive summary by him in verse 19. I think it's going to go up on the screen. He's trying to give a report to Agrippa and he said, instead they had some points of dispute with him. He's talking about the Jews and him is Paul. They had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Now that just looks like someone who's taken no notice of it at all. I don't know what they're on about. These guys say Jesus is dead. He says they're alive. I really can't make head or tail of it. Festus fell out of his depth with religious issues. That wasn't his sort of thing. He was a pragmatic, practical man, a civil administrator, administrating for the Roman Empire. And so he wanted advice from someone who knew something about these religions. And he asked King Agrippa to come over. Now, Agrippa was Jewish. He was the Jewish king. He was responsible for the care of the temple. He was actually responsible for appointing the high priests. I want to say to you that Festus, I think, is very similar to many people in modern Britain. Maybe some of the people in front of me this morning. Intelligent, educated, but assuming that Christianity is irrelevant. That modern science has disproved it. But actually, what I would argue with you is you're really very ignorant about what Christianity says and believes. And I mean that respectfully. And you will see that that issue, I think, comes out in what happens later with Festus. He's really not listened very much. He's not bothered very much. Some dispute about a dead man. He says he's dead. He says he's alive. I don't quite know what they're on about. It's not relevant to me. Now, it's not unreasonable in one level, but I want you to take time to think about it for a few minutes this morning. Many of the people who take that position today in England would see themselves, like Festus, as pragmatic, realistic, dealing with the real world, dealing with the conflict between the Jews and the Romans, dealing with this character who stirred up that conflict, needing to resolve it fairly and honourably, and not really wanting to get into the detail of what on earth they believed. But in the second trial that we read, the one that I've read a little bit of this morning a few minutes ago, it seems to me Festus really listened to what Paul was saying. Because in the second trial, it's Agrippa who really wants to hear. Now, Agrippa, we'll look at in a moment, he is 
knowledgeable about Christianity and he does want to know more about it. But as Paul is talking to Agrippa, Festus is sitting there alongside him and he's clearly listening to what Paul said. He's probably fairly respectful of Paul. He's seen he's an intelligent, well-educated man and from earlier conversations with him. And Paul's testimony is powerful. It's eloquent. It's passionate. It's inspiring. A bit like some of the testimonies heard this morning. They're real. You can tell something has really happened in this person's life. You could tell that this morning. And it was obvious with Paul as well. I think Festus' attention was engaged. This man clearly believes what he's saying, Festus thinks. This man clearly believes what he's saying. And in verses 23 to 29, we have one of the most dramatic moments in church history. Not one of the most, one of the dramatic moments in church history. There are many of them. There are moments when something significant happens. Perhaps when Martin Luther was tried uh, before the Diet of Worms and other times. There's times when, when things really sort of stand out to you. And this is one of them. As Paul is speaking about what he believes about Jesus and what he's doing, and as he explains the gospel, there is what is actually a very unorthodox interruption from Festus. Remember this, you'll see in a moment, this is a very um, official trial. Everybody's in their robes. Everybody's standing there looking very grand, sitting rather, looking very grand. And Paul's standing in the middle of a sort of circle probably, or a semicircle. And suddenly, Festus breaks the, with all tradition, breaks the decorum and shouts out. It says he shouted. As Paul gets to the bit about Jesus, Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus rising again and being hope for Jew and Gentile. He's saying, Paul is saying, Jesus is the light of the world. He is the answer for every Jew and for every Gentile. And as he gets to that point, Festus shouts out, you're mad! Paul, what are you saying? You believe this man rose from the dead and he's the answer for Romans as well as Gentiles, your great learning has driven you insane. It's almost like he's engaged. He suddenly stood up. He said, this guy believes it. He's no fool. He must have gone mad. He's studied too much. He cannot believe what Paul's saying. Now, Paul's reply is full of dignity and composure. And it's, I think, also got a very important phrase in its answer. Paul says... What I am saying is true and reasonable. He says, I am not mad, most excellent Festus. He uses a respectful term. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And it stands up to scrutiny. That's my words, the last phrase, but that's what he says. He says it's in the public domain. Many people know about it, and it stands up to scrutiny. This is very important. If you don't get anything else this morning, please get this. All of us need to remind ourselves of this. But if you're not really involved in Christianity, I want you to hear it. Because it's something that the average person doesn't sometimes think about. They think it's all fairy stories, it's all nonsense, it's all been disproved by science. It hasn't. The Christian faith is true and reasonable. Our whole faith is based on historic events. Christianity does not retreat into metaphors and pictures and myths and say, you know, that this doesn't matter. It's just a nice wild idea that someone had 2,000 years ago and it's got some value. 
That is not Christianity. Christianity is rooted in historical facts. Now, in a way, it's vulnerable sometimes to challenge because of that. But that's okay. That's fine. That goes with the territory. We believe that it is true and reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. That he lived, he taught, he died, and he rose again from the dead. And Paul is right to say, hang on, this is not the ravings of a madman. This is true and reasonable. You may not like it, Festus, but it's true and reasonable. And actually, you need to learn that and engage with that and think about it. The Christian faith is strongly rooted in factual events. We believe the Bible is accurate, is faithful to what really happened. And particularly, that's important to understand that the real Jesus, who was real, lived in Palestine, did the things that the Bible said he did, claimed and made the claims he said he did, and died the way it describes he did, and rose again as it describes him doing. Now, in the case of this account here in Acts 26, we need to remember some quite interesting things. First of all, all the events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection happened within the lifetime of the people standing there in the trial. This wasn't ancient history like it might seem to us. This had all happened within a decade or two of this event. These people were actually alive when Jesus was alive. These were mature middle-aged people. They had been alive when Jesus died and rose again. And so Paul rightly draws on that, particularly with Agrippa and the Jewish uh, uh, sort of group there. He says, they know this happened. They know all about it. They know about Jesus. They know about his death and his resurrection. And I let me say, I haven't time to explore the resurrection fully this morning. I'd love to do it. But there's at least one point you've got to draw from this. Paul is on the front foot about the resurrection. He doesn't say it here, but he keeps saying Jesus is raised from the dead. And the implication of that is no one has been able to disprove that. These Christians have been banging on about the fact that Jesus is alive for 10, 15 years or more at this time, and no one has been able to rubbish that claim. And wouldn't they have loved to rubbish it? They would. The Jewish authorities would love to have shown it was rubbish. They'd have loved to have drawn out a rotting corpse and held it up and said, this is their saviour. They'd have loved to get people who they could show had, had, had conned them or... They they could not find an explanation for the resurrection. And they wanted to. They wanted to stamp this out. And yet they couldn't because the only answer was the correct answer. Jesus had risen from the dead and the tomb was empty. There was no body. There were no bones. The risen Jesus was at the right hand of the Father and had poured out the Holy Spirit. And the early church, right through Acts, kept on courageously building the resurrection as the central factor of their message. And they could not be contradicted. The Christian faith is true and reasonable. If you are really interested in exploring it properly, can I uh, boldly but, but politely encourage you to go on an Alpha course? Don't do a Festus. Say, oh, it's all rubbish, it's all ravings, forget it. No, 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 it isn't. And if you go on an Alpha course, this is about a 10-week course run by many, many churches. We run one here. If you really wanted to join one, you could join one on Wednesday at 7.30 here. It's a shortened one because of the summer, and there's still about three sessions to go, I think. But you'd at least get a taste of it. 
You could come here at 7.30 on a Wednesday. However, you may not want to do that. You may want to do the whole thing properly. You will find Alpha courses here and in many thousands of churches in the UK, particularly churches that believe the Bible. They might be Anglican, they might be Baptist, they might be us type, but they will we all do the same sort of course with the same sort of material because Christians today have realised that people do not understand the strong case for Christianity. You need to explore who Jesus was, what he did, the evidence for the resurrection. And you can think about it, you can talk about it over discussion on an Alpha course and you can go away and reject it. You're free to do that. But at least you will have listened properly and not done a, a Festus thing, which was a sweep it aside as mad. He was disturbed by what he heard. He clearly was impressed by Paul. That's obvious. He was impressed by it. But his reaction was, well, this is mad. This sort of thing doesn't happen. But actually, he needed to explore it because it was true and reasonable. And I pray that you'll explore it. Find an Alpha course, they'll usually be advertised clearly near you and go along and listen and take part and discuss the realities of Jesus. There's a little thing that we need to say before we leave Festus. It's quite challenging. This was a now moment in Festus's life. They come in our lives. A moment when he had an opportunity to really get to know God through Jesus Christ. Festus could have gone the other way. He could have said, this guy is no fool. I respect him. I want to hear a bit more about this. Paul, come back later privately and start talking to me. That's actually what Felix did, to be fair, although Felix rejected the gospel because of its challenge to his lifestyle. Festus was thinking it was not for him and he wasn't going to listen to it. But you know what happened to Festus? Well, you don't. I'm going to tell you. Do you know what happened to Festus? No, we don't, John. Please tell us. Right, I will tell you. So this is what happened to Festus. And it's actually quite challenging. The Roman records tell us that Festus died suddenly two years after taking up the post of governor. The sort of description might match a heart attack. It was a very sudden death. He just dropped dead. Now, actually, that's quite likely a heart attack, and it probably was a pretty stressful job being the governor of a rebellious province like Judea and having to try and bring everything together. He was obviously a man of some degree of integrity. That comes through. He died two years after he took up the post. This trial we're looking at is a good nine months after he took up the post. So just over a year after what we've read, he dropped dead. Just over a year after what we've read, he was dead and gone. And he had met the God who he'd rejected. He met the Lord who he'd not seriously taken. That's pretty sobering. We never quite know what the future holds for us. And we mustn't say the superficial knee-jerk thing, oh, that's all disproved, that's all rubbish, I don't need to think about that. You do need to think about it. There is a God, there is a Saviour, hallelujah, and if you take time to explore it, it could be not only vitally important for this life, but for the life to come. It could change the course of your eternity and your destiny. It's certainly worth investigating. Let's move on to the last one. Agrippa. Now, Agrippa is a different kettle of fish. I think his problem is pride, really. I've called it not my sort of thing. So Agrippa's excuse 
is in modern language not my sort of thing. But I think it's a pride problem. Very briefly, Agrippa was a Jewish king. He was a puppet monarch put in by the Romans. He had no real power. He had no real authority. He actually came from a long line of troublesome monarchs. His dad was Agrippa I, who we met in Acts 12, who had James executed, the Apostle James. Agrippa's lifestyle was slightly unconventional. Agrippa lived with his sister, his real sister, Bernice. Full-on sister, blood sister. And all the rumours were that it was an incestuous relationship. They did not in any way contradict the rumours and they tended to behave like husband and wife. This was quite alternative. Agrippa came from a very strange long line and family. Nevertheless, he was fascinated by Christianity. And he actually asks Festus if he can talk to Paul. You can read that in in another verse that I haven't read to you. It's in 25, chapter 25. He says, I'd like to hear him. He's actually very interested in Paul. And he wants to hear the gospel. In verse 13, we can see that he was slightly, uh, sort of, if you like, fawning towards the Romans. He had no real power himself, and he came down to pay his respects to Festus. So he really wasn't as important as he thought he was. But he did love the pomp and ceremony. Look at verse 23. I think it's going to go up on the screen. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So they came with great pomp. They actually hadn't got any power, but they liked to show off and they liked to be thought of as important. They were part of a notorious, yes, wealthy, corrupt, ambitious family in the Palestine area. Now, when this trial went on, you've got, you've got Festus and his sister, whatever, next to him, all dressed in their pomp and ceremony. You've got, uh, sorry, that's Agrippa. You've got Festus in his Roman sort of gown, probably with a bit of extra colour on it, purple or something, and maybe a, I don't know, if he had, no, he wouldn't have had a laurel thing because that was the emperor's, but he's all in his, his Roman finery. You've got them in their, uh, you know, Jewish king finery, probably crowns and things, and then in comes the Apostle Paul. Now, he would be dressed in prison garb. Though it's under house arrest, it would have been in a plain, simple robe. He would have been chained So he'd had a chain on each wrist, linking him up, chained his wrists together, and he probably had at least one, if not two, Roman soldiers standing by him. The contrast is pretty impressive and pretty dramatic. You've got these uh, very influential and uh, important people, and you've got the Apostle Paul in the middle, just with the simple robe, the chains, and the soldier. But there is no doubt who dominated the courtroom. It was Paul with his calm, dignified, Christ-like presence. And the way he handled everything that came his way. I think this guy is superb. And it's no doubt that this was one of those moments, I've already said, in church history, that perhaps had an impression on many others who were watching. Probably the person who wrote Acts, maybe Luke or somebody else who gave him the story, was there in the public gallery watching the whole thing. And they remembered every bit of it. So Agrippa was familiar with Christianity. When Festus shouted out his interruption, Paul kept his attention on Agrippa. 
because he knew that Agrippa had a serious interest. We've got it here in verses 26 and 27. Paul looks straight at Agrippa. He doesn't get too distracted with Festus. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I think, what courage this man had. He's right in this situation I described, and he knows Agrippa is seriously interested. He knows Agrippa is not going to agree with Festus that it is mad. This is madman ravings. Agrippa is much more seriously interested in the Christian faith. He does know that these things happened. He's heard a lot about it. But sadly, Agrippa seems too proud to admit it. Too proud to give Paul a straight answer. He certainly doesn't agree with Festus that it's madman's ravings, but he gives a sort of light-hearted rebuff a sort of sarcastic dismissal that you don't think someone like me will be persuaded to be a Christian so easily. Oh, you're, it sounds as though you're trying to persuade me to be a Christian. <laughs> Fancy the thought. <laughs> and you can almost imagine as a little snigger goes round his entourage. You know, you think so quickly you can persuade me to be a Christian? Actually, he is interested and he does respect Paul. We can find that out from just reading the verses we read. He goes away when he hurries out of the room and notice it's him that's uncomfortable, not Paul. It's him that's uncomfortable. And the king rose, it says in verse 30. I suspect a bit quickly, he seems to cut short the trial at this point. And the governor and Bernice rose to, they left the room and they talked together. And Agrippa said, this man could have been set free if he'd not applied to see, appealed to Caesar. Agrippa is actually quite respectful of Paul, quite sympathetic. I believe this man allowed his pride to keep him from becoming a Christian and having a whole new lifestyle, a whole hope and a whole future and eternity with God. Basically, he felt the power of the words that Paul was speaking. He knew the reality of it. The gospel impacted his life, but he pulled back and he said, people like me don't do this. This is not for someone like me. We don't do this religious stuff, this enthusiasm. And sadly, as with the others, there's no evidence he ever changed that position. He allowed it to be, he deflected the gospel from him with his pride. He didn't want to look a fool in front of Festus or in front of all these other people. He didn't want to look as though he was serious and engaged in it. What on earth would they think of him? If, if, if he played, if you like, Paul's game. Paul was saying, you know this is true. You've read the prophets. You are interested. <laughs> you trying to make me a Christian so easily? I don't think so. And, and, and actually, that was pride. I, I'm not going to cave in in front of these guys. I wonder if some of you might even be like that. It is a tough call, isn't it, being baptised? It's pretty humbling to stand here and say what you say and then get all wet and... That's great, we're all warm and we applaud you, but that's a scary thing to do. It's not easy to stand for Jesus. It's not easy at work to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I follow him. People often say things like this. I've heard it several times in my life, probably many times. I'm glad it works for you. I'm glad you found religion. I envy you. I envy you, but it's not for me. I'm a quiet type of person. I'm not very religious. I couldn't do all that sort of thing. It all sounds very polite, but with due respect, can I lovingly say, I think it's a pride problem. I think it's often a pride problem. 
I think we need to be open to the challenge of the gospel. I think underneath that there's often a worry, whatever would the festuses of my world think? The festuses who think we're all stupid, who think, well, it's obviously been disproved and da-da-da. How am I going to handle it with them if I'm front of them, I admit that I think it's worth a look. I think it's pretty good, which I think Agrippa was on the edge of. He'd asked to hear it. And he was on the edge of getting involved, but his pride wouldn't let him. Can I just say to you, don't let pride keep you out of heaven. Don't let it happen. Don't let your fear of what other people will think of you keep you from the best thing that could ever happen to you. Knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Well, let's finish with Paul because there's a wonderful, wonderful way he replies. I love this verse. Verse 29. Paul replied to that sort of, sort of slightly humorous knock aside of his, of his challenge. Paul replied like this. Short time or long... I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. It's a powerful answer. And this shows us something profound we need to get hold of. With power and dignity, Paul takes the king's words at face value. He doesn't try and understand whether they're sarcastic or not. The king says, you know, in such a short time, you're trying to make me a Christian, he takes them at face value. Paul was utterly sincere. He really believed that the gospel would have done good to King Agrippa or to Festus or any of the others of them. That for all the inconvenience it brought them, it would have brought them hope and eternal life. He really believed that everybody would be better off to be like him, except not in prison chains, of course, as he quite quickly acknowledged, but everybody would be better off like him as a follower of Jesus. Even the king, even the governor would be better to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Do you believe that? I believe that. I honestly believe that. There isn't anyone in the whole of this country who would not be better off to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. From the Queen, Prince Charles, right down to the lowest of the low, the person whose life is a shambles, whatever race they come from, whatever religion they profess, Muslim, Jew... Hindu, nobody in this whole nation would not be better off to be a Christian and follow Jesus Christ. They all need to know Jesus. I don't care if they're a top-ranked celebrity, and I don't care what their lifestyle is. Do you notice Paul isn't backing off because of this incestuous couple? A couple that almost make Hollywood look quite boring. They live openly like this. they're, they're, They're in this long line of weird monarchs. And yet Paul believes the gospel can reach them. Isn't that pretty impressive? That Paul is actually saying, Agrippa, you could be a Christian too. It doesn't matter that you live incestuously with your sister. It doesn't matter that you're a crooked, weird guy. That you're a wealthy king who doesn't know which side to obey, the Jew or the Romans. You've got a whole line of crooks behind you. That doesn't matter. I wish you knew Jesus. You can know Jesus too. There is no sin too big to keep you out of the kingdom of God. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what relationship you're in this morning. It may be as bad as this one. It was a pretty weird relationship Agrippa was in. You can come to know Jesus. It'll take a bit of untangling, but God will help you. The gospel is for everyone.
for everyone. Paul very almost wittily says, I would you were all like me except for these chains. Perhaps he held his hands up as he said it. And I can say, I would you were like me except for the limitations of John Groves. I don't want you to have my quirks. I'm a very odd character. And I don't want you to be like me in all the limitations. But I do want you to be like me in knowing Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. I would that everyone in the world was like me in terms of following Jesus. I mean it. I can understand Paul's passion. I feel it myself. I feel a frustration sometimes. Perhaps he felt it. All of you dignitaries, all of you Romans, what? You're missing it. Jesus is alive. I would. But he keeps himself so dignified because he doesn't just go ranting. They're shouting and funny. And he says, no, no, I would that you would embrace this. I would you would embrace it. And I would say the same to you. I want everyone, young or old, rich or poor, whatever race, class or religion, to know and believe in the Jesus I know and believe in. I have no hesitation in recommending faith in Jesus to every last person I meet. And every one of you here this morning. Many of you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. But if you don't, don't go away without doing something about it. We're going to close with a song in a minute. At the end of our song, could the musicians come up, please? Thanks. At the end of our song, you could come to me. I'm not going to make you come forward in the song. It's not that sort of occasion, I think. You could come to me and I'll give you a little booklet called Why Jesus, which would give you something to think about, to take away and read and think about your own faith in Jesus and understand what needs to be done to become a Christian. Or, as I said earlier, you could determine to go on an alpha course. Whatever you decide to do, you might want to come and pray this morning and become a Christian. That would be wonderful. Whatever you decide to do, don't do what these guys did. Don't bat it away with some excuse. Not my sort of thing. Oh, it's all mad, mad, madness. It's all stupid. Only stupid people do that. No, no, no. It's not as simple as that. Or, well, it's not convenient at the moment. You didn't see that one. Last week we talked about that. I'll come back to it when it's more convenient. There won't be a more convenient season. This is the convenient season. So please don't go away without making some move. Talk to a friend, ask them what to do. Purpose to go on Alpha course, come and get a booklet. God bless you. Come on.